My name is June Alison Gibbons, and I have a twin sister called Jennifer, and we're known as Silent Twins. Welcome to Stat, I'm telling you all Medical true crime stories and it gets bizarre Karen Wickham, yeah she used to work in ER And now she's sharing the knowledge so let's get involved Ay, Funny and scary at the same time Medical mysteries, all facts, she ain't lying <laughs> So tune in to Stat if you dare Cause crazy things can happen anytime, anywhere <laughs> Yeah Hello, 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 everybody out there in podcast land. Welcome to Stat, Shocking Traumas and Treatments, and I am your host, Karen Wickham, coming to you from beautiful Toronto, Ontario, Canada. And today I have with me the beautiful Mary. Hello, everybody. And as you heard, we are going to be talking about the silent twins. Mm-hmm. So as you heard, that was June. So there is way more to the story than, well, let's just say, I realized. Mm-hmm. Okay? I first heard about the twins when I did some episodes on Patreon about Broadmoor Psychiatric Hospital in the UK. And it's one of those hospitals that um, are infamous. Okay? It's not, I don't think it's as infamous as a uh, Bethlehem or Bedlam, which is all, what it's also known as. Um, but you think you hear Broadmoor and you go, oh, okay. Criminally, for the criminally insane. Yeah. I mean, is that more because of the people that were there? It wasn't necessarily a, a bad place. Not initially. Okay. And that's from the very, very beginning. But as time went on, more and more of the criminally insane and really bad guys, bad gals went there. But it was also a place where very sick people went, but generally it was a a hospital for the criminally insane. So what are young silent twins doing at a psychiatric hospital? So I needed to know more about that. I was, I was intrigued and, and, and like, what, what the hell? So why were they silent? Was it physical? Did they suffer trauma? And the more I researched their story, the more I wanted to know. So I'm going to be packing a lot of info into all of these episodes because I think it's one of the most fascinating and tragic stories I've come across. So let's start at the beginning. Let's talk about her parents. Her mother, Gloria Gibbons, um, was from Barbados and she was youngest at five and she was very close with her mother and her father was very strict. She, as well as the family, were well educated and she worked as a telephonist at Sewell Airport. Aubrey was the eldest of six. He came from an unstable family life. There was constant fighting and abuse. And he was able to get away from that because he won a scholarship to an exclusive private school modeled after British private schools. So he was a really bright guy. Gloria and Aubrey met at the Siebel Airport because they both work there. And they fell in love and they got married on December 8th, 1955. And they had their first child, Frank, who died as an infant. And then they had Greta and David. In 1960, they moved to England for better prospects for their growing family. And Aubrey joined the RAF, which is the Royal Air Force. Being a military family is very difficult. They are constantly moving from base to base. It's even more difficult when you're a black family. 
and this is in 1960. Gloria had difficulty settling in. She was in a new country with no family support or friends, which she had plenty of. Uh, in Barbados, everybody just jumped in and helped each other out with their children and, and, you know, nieces and nephews and that kind of thing. And she didn't have this here. So she was raising two young children and managing the whole household. And I mean absolutely everything. Aubrey went to work, came home. That was all he had to do. That's all he felt he had to do. And he had no difficulty fitting in because he had a, a really great education based on, a, you know, British private schools. And he was uh, as much as an Englishman as anyone else in the RAF. June and Jennifer were born on April 11th, 1963. June was born at 8 o'clock a.m. and Jennifer at 8.10, which she re resented for the rest of her life. She wanted to be the oldest. Gloria was pleased that she had doubled her family in one shot. <laughs> and at the time that they were born, Greta was seven and David was four. The twins were born healthy, although at first June was a little slower at reaching her benchmarks, um, unlike her sister, Jennifer. Very early on, Gloria saw that the twins wanted to do everything together, including breastfeeding. Can you imagine trying to breastfeed two babies at the exact same time? I mean, exhausting. As the twins became toddlers, they brought much joy to their family. They were bright and affectionate and always smiling and laughing. And things had gotten easier for Gloria as her two eldest were in school and self more self-sufficient. And the twins played together, keeping each other busy. So you're a twin. Did you have your own little language and play together sort of exclusively? How, how were you? Yeah, I think there's a lot of similarities with twins. I mean, it's interesting because at the time when we were born, Joya, my older sister, was six and my brother was four. Very similar. So very similar. <laughs> so, you know, a lot of people would say to my mom, oh, you have your hands full. And she said, well, but, you know, they kind of play with themselves. Like they have an instant built-in playmate. And I think, you know, like many, we had our own little language, like almost like a little psychic connection and stuff like that. I don't know specifically, like I don't recall necessarily having our own little language. I think just, you know, even now we can kind of complete each other's sentences and stuff like that. So Yeah, I've heard you two in the kitchen together going, <laughs> and I, I honestly don't know what you're saying. I think because you need your hearing checked. Hey, hey. <laughs> All right. But yeah, no, definitely. And I, I remember having a teammate with twins and they would, you know, come to practice and um, and they would just play together. And it was so cute because they go, come on, sister. And they'd take each other's hand. <laughs> walk off and go do their thing mm. but yeah pretty i think that's a pretty common experience with with twins as they have their own little language especially when they're really little and they just you know like i said they have a an instant playmate but i didn't resent like i'm i'm four. anna was born first and then i was breached because i was kicking her out saying get the freak out no, I, was just <laughs> I was born yeah but anna's been late for everything ever since <laughs> no 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 <laughs> <laughs> no, we were early, actually. Yeah. Um, anyway. Okay. So, well, yeah. So, I was breached. So, I was second born. So, I was four minutes after. But I don't resent the fact that Anna's four minutes older than me. Like, Well, obviously, this is a very, very different situation here. Um, you know, you carried on with your growth and development. And these guys, 
Well, we'll see. So they were delayed in talking and they could only speak in two to three word sentences um, and their words were hard to understand. And this is at three years old. Definitely they should be speaking a lot more than that. Gloria and Aubrey were really not that worried because the twins were known to sometimes communicate in their own special language, which is what we just talked about. In 1968, Rosie was born and she would be the last of the Gibson uh, children. And June and Jennifer were now five years old and in primary school. They were still not talking very much and it was mostly to each other. At the end of the year, the school report stated that the girls were not speaking to their teacher and showed little interest in participating at all. They kept mostly to themselves. They decided to send the girls to speech therapy for an assessment and to assist in their language skills. They were sent home with exercises to do, but they were never done and there therefore was no improvement. Although their reading skills were excellent. I mean, they were young, but still they were, they picked up on reading pretty quick. In 1971, Aubrey was posted to the RAF Shivner. This um, uprooted the family all over again. The twins were now eight years old and they're, they continued to not speak and their behavior started to get increasingly bizarre. So the school that they went to was called Broughton Devon. They were bullied for being black and for not talking. They withdrew even further into their own world where they felt safe and could block out the world around them. What little talking they did with the members of their family had stopped. They had isolated themselves even further. So I'm going to play a little clip here of June just talking in, in respects to this, okay? We had our language. We had our language. Me, me and my sister spoke. We knew what we were saying. My mother had to guess what we were saying. A bit frustrating, we had to repeat ourselves more often. And then we couldn't be bothered to repeat ourselves, we didn't speak. And left it. And they kept saying, what are you saying? What are you saying? And we just say, oh, you can't hear us now, you can't hear us never. So we decided not to speak, and we got into a habit of not speaking. We felt we were different, we were twins, and we were a different colour. So um, they picked on us. We, we, were, we were like that, and we didn't speak to anybody. They got like extra swings. We didn't speak to anybody, and they kept saying, why won't they speak? Can they speak English? Why won't they talk? And the more they said that, the more we shut up. So that's obviously June explaining what was, uh, you know, initially the purpose of, and the frustration of why they, they stopped talking. So the family would hear them animatedly chattering back and forth, uh, but they couldn't understand what they were saying. They could just pick up a word or two. And again, what they said, it was like they were speaking in high speed. High speed? Yeah, they're like, like, like oh, really, really back and forth. Well, and clearly this is, that clip is from her as, well, how old is she? I think she? she was 31 in this clip. So I've seen the video and there's clearly, there's something that's impeded their speech. Yeah, I mean, there's a, she does have a, they do have a bit of a speech impediment, which I will talk about coming up. In 1974, Aubrey was transferred again, this time to Haverford West in West Wales. Greta was 17 years old and going to college. David was 14 
and June and Jennifer, 11 years old. So David and the twins went to secondary school together and with the other servicemen's children and Rosie went to primary school. Now home life was getting really tense. The twins spoke a few words to their mother, but did not speak to Aubrey, Greta, or David at all. The only member of the family that they talked to was Rosie, and they would have regular conversations with Rosie. The twins' behavior was getting even more strange. During meals, they would sit rigidly, only looking down at the table at their plates. They no longer had expressions on their faces, except for to each other and to Rosie. Their behavior at school was disturbing to the staff. They never spoke to the teachers or to the principal. They would just stare at the teacher's chest or at the floor when they were being spoken to, rarely acknowledging them at all. They would sit or stand rigidly with their arms hanging to their side. They were never seen going to the bathroom or eating, and they were always together. They had no friends. They continued to be bullied relentlessly. They were allowed to leave school five minutes early because the bullying was so bad. I've got a quote here from their headmaster, Cyril Davis, and he's commenting on their bizarre behavior. Okay. Quote, one day I was in with the school secretary whose window looks out on the playground. And there were the twins doing a kind of goose step, walking 10 yards behind the other, very slowly as though in some strange stately procession. Did they always walk like that? I asked the secretary. Yes, she said. I couldn't believe it and jumped into my car to see how long they would keep it up. I followed them through the town, still doing their dead march, one following the other, end quote. So yeah, there's, uh, that's, that's odd. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm sure my sister and I had our little idiosyncrasies, but. I, I mean, were they kids just? being kids because kids do weird things yeah but i guess there was something to this and that the fact that they did it every day and they did it so exact and so slow and synchronicity that it was like odd yeah that is odd unsurprisingly they didn't do well in school they were taking remedial classes and they only did well with reading and writing and showed no interest in other subjects now this will play in the future the their um, ability to read and write well. So June was a slightly better student than Jennifer, and she scored a little bit higher in intelligence. Their behavior was disturbing to the teachers and staff. If they were confronted by a teacher for their poor behavior or studies, okay, they would face each other with their hands on each other's shoulders and block out the teachers. So they would look directly at each other with hands on each other's shoulders with the teacher trying to talk to them. So very protective, very defensive. They would try to be as small as possible and as far away as possible from any other human being. Here's a quote from one of the teachers, Michael John, who was particularly disturbed by the behavior. Quote, I've had 6,000 children go through in 30 years, and I've encountered only four I felt were evil. One boy who raped the daughter of a best friend. Another eventually shot a boy. A third was found guilty of rape and assault. And the fourth was Jennifer. 
I felt that June should not be allowed to mix with her or come under her influence. That bad one would not have been so bad had she not been able to draw the strength from her twin and the other would have been normal. End quote. Wow, that's pretty fascinating. Just like the bad seed. The bad seed, the evil twin. At the end of the day, regardless of their unease and frustration and puzzlement, the school did nothing to help them. This is what their excuse was. Quote, they never stepped out of line. They never broke any rules. We had no disciplinary problems. End quote. I'm calling bullshit on this. Okay? They didn't talk at all. They didn't talk to the teachers. They didn't acknowledge the teachers. They did not participate in school. They did poorly. They were bullied. No intervention was needed? I think they just didn't want to be bothered. And they were freaked out by these kids. So they're like, okay, well, let's just pass them and move on. That's just my opinion. Yeah, that's... Yeah, I can't bullshit on it, too. <laughs> Or were, just, or were they just not equipped to deal with this like they needed? Well, the fact that they said they were disturbed by them. They're acknowledging that they have these, this bizarre behavior and no expression on their face and would not acknowledge anybody is enough for me to say, all right, is there more to it than this? So anyway, there was a meeting with Gloria and Aubrey and they defended the twins' behavior saying that they were just shy. Okay. That's not just shy. But I guess being a mother and a father may be in denial about well, how, this. How old are they at this age? 11. And they don't speak. Like, that's... I'm sorry, but that's not I think normal. it's denial. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So intervention didn't actually happen until the day June and Jennifer stood in queue to get their TB vaccination. Dr. Reese was the physician that gave them their shots. And he was shocked by their unusual behavior. He said that he would try to joke around with the the children, try to put them at ease. But when it was the twins' turn, they had no reaction at all. They just just stared ahead, made no sound, no reaction when they got the injection, and just walked away. They reminded him of zombies as if they were in a trance, and it unnerved him. So Dr. Reese wanted to know more about these twins. So he made an appointment to speak with the headmaster, Cyril Davis, and he couldn't believe that there was next to no information about them. So he asked permission to meet with Gloria and Aubrey. He visited them at their home, and he was impressed by them. They were intelligent, well-spoken. It was a, a nice, clean environment. You know, I, I, maybe not what he was expecting. But and, and he was puzzled by the fact that they showed little concern about their daughter's lack of speech and their social skills. The one thing that they did tell him was that the girls had been diagnosed with a, uh, as being mildly tongue-tied. And this is called, and this is called ankylglossia. So it's a condition when, um, that's present at birth. And it restricts the tongue's range of motion. It has um, an unusually short, thick or tight band of tissue uh, known as the lingual frenulum. And it tethers to the bottom of the tongue's tip to the floor of the mouth and it can interfere with breastfeeding difficulty sticking their tongue out um, how they eat speak and swallow Gloria and Aubrey were kind of happy about this they were kind of relieved because then they can say oh well that's the reason why they don't speak 
Yeah, but shouldn't have that have been caught sooner? Like, well, I they have, didn't uh, talk. <laughs> no, I know, but I, I'm just saying. Like, I have, I've had, I know, I've had, we've had a few clients who've had kids that had this, and they had a, a, it's a minor surgery, and it corrects it really quickly. Yeah, it, it was not considered. It was considered mild, though, because they had no problem breastfeeding, eating, drinking, swallowing, all that other kind of stuff. So, mm. well, you can hear it in her speech. But that's that was that's not because of that. Well, we'll, so, yeah, okay. We'll get into that. Okay. Okay. So, like I said, for Gloria, it was a relief that she could say, "Oh, well, it was a physical uh, problem rather than a psychological one." But Dr. Reese wanted to consult with a child psychiatrist first. Like, why do surgery if it's not an extreme speech impediment? First, let's let's see if we can, you know, get to the bottom of it. That makes sense. Yeah. So he consulted a doctor by the name of Dr. Evan Davis. And he believed that June and Jennifer had something that's called elective mutism. Um, and he wasn't all enthused to get involved because it is hard to treat. And from what I'm reading, he really sounds like a, a, a pompous jerk. Like, you know, I'll, I'll take the easy cases. I don't want to deal with that kind of thing. So what is elective mutism? It's an outdated term which was defined as a refusal to speak in almost all situations or social situations. And this happened even though they had no physical reason why they, they, they can't or they couldn't. And it was either considered to be caused by one of two things, trauma or being willfully obstinate. So there was no in between here. Now, it's now known as selective mutism. And what that is defined as is um, a means of avoiding anxious feelings that surface when met with um, expectations and social encounters. And the next to that is traumatic mutism, which can develop suddenly in all situations preceded by a traumatic event. Yeah, there's been like movies and stuff where that's happened with a person what movie was that the secret life of bees i think okay one of the characters didn't speak yeah but it you know i mean you you hear about a, a child that's had horrible abuse and they either can't speak because the abuse has been so bad and they've been taken away from education social situations or isolated and then also again from from trauma so that's what they were um diagnosed with and it's considered a rare condition. At this point, Dr. Davies had been into his career for over 20 years and only seen a handful of, of, of children with that. In November 1976, the twins started their treatment with Dr. Davies. But it didn't last. Um, he just said, oh, it's a speech impediment, and pawned them off to a Miss Anne Traharn. She was the chief speech therapist for Haverford West, and she worked through Withy Bush Hospital. I actually um, been consulting with Lorraine how to say these things properly. Oh, right, because it's in Wales. It is right? in Wales, and uh, she's helped me a little if bit. Words from Wales don't leave you tongue-tied. <laughs> yeah. So she was considered an expert um, in children with elective mutism. Is she a medical doctor? No. Okay. I didn't remember if speech therapists were medical doctors or not. I think there's doctors, medical doctors, that specialize in that, but... No. The twins started treatment with her in February 1977. And she was going to have to somehow get them to speak before she could diagnose them and put together a treatment plan. 
One myth method that she had used successfully before was to have a child talk into a tape recorder. They would feel less uh, self-conscious um, if they were on their own and asked questions and then answered on their own. And then with playback, they'd hear themselves. So they, they wouldn't be as, like I said, self-conscious and anxious. And she tried this with the twins, but they didn't respond. Occasionally, they might get it, she might get a yes or a no from June, but Jennifer never uttered a word. There's like dead air on the table yeah. all the time. So Andrew Harn believed that Jennifer was trying to stop June from speaking. June would look on the verge of saying something, and Jennifer would give her a subtle look or a side eye, and then June would clam up. She made all the decisions. June appeared to be unable to defy that, break through that. In March 1977, June and Jennifer had the surgery. Uh, it's called a frenulum linguae operation. But they were not properly um, prepared for this. They went into surgery, they came out, and they're in a ton of pain with their under their tongue in their mouth. So you think that might cause some resentment. And trauma. Yeah. Maybe in those days they didn't feel like they had to explain it <laughs> to kids, but I don't know. I it, it, Bad call. Mm. They were miserable and just, like I said, in a ton of pain. And it didn't improve their speech much at all because it what really wasn't, um, it was a mild impediment. So back to Dr. Reese and Dr. Evans. They contacted a psychologist by the name of Tim Thomas and decided that the twins should be transferred to Eastgate Center for Special Education. Their teacher would be Kathy Arthur, an excellent, dedicated, and passionate educator. And she had, she was like considered like a spitfire. She had unlimited energy when it came to um, helping children get over their obstacles. And June and Jennifer would almost break her. They started at Eastgate on April 19th, 1977. There was a teacher assigned to manage the twins' education, and his name was John Harry. And uh, he was another kind of dedicated educator. Kathy would be their speech therapist. Eastgate had a multidisciplinary approach. A whole team of specialists such as social workers, child psychiatrists, educator psychologists, which was what Tim Thomas was, teachers and therapists would be involved um, with every individual child. They would have team meetings and discuss their progress and needs. So I'm just, the reason why I'm sort of, I'm, go, I'm saying this is because it showed you that it was a good school that was. That's a very comprehensive. Approach. Approach, yeah. yeah. Like lots of people involved. They're all meeting to make sure they're on the same page, you know, like. Yeah, and, they, and they're using all their expertise to put together a, a good plan. So Kathy Arthur assessed the twins and tried to put together a game plan to best help them. And this is what she assessed about their odd behavior and the challenges of putting together a plan of action. When I read this, I was like, oh, started to change a little bit how I saw these twins. Maybe I'm just being a jerk, but I'm, you'll, you'll see or hear. They spoke to no one, including the children in their group. They ate unbelievably slow at mealtimes or they wouldn't eat at all and I'm talking like sloth slow 
Okay, like as, as slow as you can imagine a, a person can eat. And they would walk at this speed as well. Super slow. And this would anger the students and staff. They'd be standing in line to go get food and they would just move really slow. And they'd be, come on, hurry up. And I, I see that as control. Mm-hmm. Kathy would pick them up every morning and take them to school. So she would, this is, this is what she, she would pick them up so they didn't have to take a bus. They hated going on a bus. They would even, they would stand aside from everybody else. Even if it was pouring rain, they would get soaked. So Kathy well, would pick. they were probably picked and bullied on. Like, oh, a hundred percent. So this shows that she was willing to come get them every day to go to school. So she'd get them, they'd be standing outside and neither one of them would get into the car. They would stand with their arms hanging at their sides, the same behavior, staring straight ahead or at the ground and not move a muscle. So she would try to coax them into the car. This is every day. Okay. This is not the first time. So she would have to physically put them in the car. She would take them by the shoulders and gently lead them to the car. Then she would bend their knees for them. And then sort of push them in and, uh, and then shut the doors. See, that's like, you're, you're doing that on purpose. Like that's willfully obstinate. Like I get, I, I get that they didn't want to go to school cause it was probably horrific for them. Yeah. Or wait but by people their, on the was bus. Was it their own doing? Yeah. They, they were bullied and they were, you know, like you said, like why they wouldn't want to go on a bus. They're sort of in a confined in, environment or they want to stand with other people. But so are they catatonic? Are they, you know, no, I don't think so. And you'll see more and more that they're thinking through this. Okay. I don't think I'm being unfair here. So can you imagine now the whole car ride there, they wouldn't say a word. So Kathy would just chatter away, trying to engage them to break this painful silence, but they would not speak. The, and the next thing is that they would mirror each other's movements they were in complete synchronicity as if they were robots programmed to do so. Okay. So they, if one of them moved their arm, a, like a smidge, the other one would see that movement. Then they would look at each other and then move their arm wherever to eat, to a fork, to their side. And they did this with their legs And this, when they walked, they would always have eyes on each other and like just the dedication to this. Okay, so Kathy would try to block them from seeing each other during exercises, but they wouldn't move. Or they would move so slowly that it was barely noticeable. They tried horseback riding, which they seemed to enjoy. Great, right? Okay. And But they tried to like go up and down on the horse at the exact same time. Well, the horse is going to do its thing, right? And if one fell off, the other one would intentionally fall off. As well. So it's like, oopsie, plop. And the other one's like, oh, okay, plop. <laughs> like, what the hell? So you intentionally hurt yourself? Yeah, so they had to stop this exercise because it became too dangerous. <laughs> and it seemed like something that they might have really liked, right? No. Oh it's one of those, uh, you know, cut your nose to spite your face kind of thing. So in class, they would not face the front like the other students. They would take their chairs, face each other, without a desk in between and they would not look at the front of the class. They were sitting parallel to the class 
and they would just stare at each other. I mean, kids are cruel anyway. <laughs> like, they just, you know, you hear about bullying and stuff. I mean, that would just make you so odd. It just... And can you imagine trying to be the teacher to teach them when these two students are clearly... But then again, it was a special education st- school, so they were sort of used to odd behavior or kids that had some problems and, you know, they they dealt with things in very specific ways. So... Kathy tried to use a tape recorder method with little uh, success as well. It would either be blank or they hear some giggling at the end. Um, Or they might talk to each other like a tiny little bit. But can you imagine silence and then... (laughs) These kids that would fall off horses, sit parallel, not talk to anybody. They have the tape and you hear... (laughs) That just scares me. Makes you think of the kids in The Shining. Twins in The Shining. (laughs) Yeah. Um... This proved that the twins could speak, though, when they wanted to. And it also revealed that they had this mild speech impediment. So she tried everything she could to get them to talk, um, to follow lessons and loosen their grip on each other. And there was little to no improvement. Praise, rewards didn't work. Neither did admonishment or mild punishment, like saying, okay, you can't have this fun time of the day or that kind of thing. So Kathy felt that maybe there was something more sinister going on, that they were actually knowing what they're doing. This wasn't psychological. I mean, obviously there's a level of psychological, you know, element to this, but they, aside from that, they, they knew what they were doing. So was this a game to them? Were they egging each other on? Were they purposely trying to frustrate the staff? Were they trying to control each other? And if any of this was true, it was likely that Jennifer was behind the helm of this. They noticed that she still had this influence on June. In early summer 1977, Tim Thomas and Kathy Arthur worked together to do a psychological assessment on June and Jennifer. So the first test is called the, I believe, the the Bean or Ben Anthony family reaction test. And this is how it works. Each member of the family has a card that represents them, a little cutout. Um, And a question would be asked, like, who hugs you? Um, Who do you turn to when you're sad, etc. And the child chooses what person relates to that question and puts them in a box. And if nobody helps, then there's a little cutout called Mr. Nobody. So June had 38 out of 85 Mr. Nobodies. And Jennifer had 52 out of 85 Mr. Nobodies. So that says a lot. And then the next test was the Weschler Intelligent Test. Um, And June scored higher than Jennifer. They did well in comprehension, like uh, reading comprehension, poor vocabulary, obviously. And they refused to do any math at all. Um, And then there's part of me saying, isn't this unfair to do an intelligent test on a mute child but then again it will show their level of education not necessary their intelligence but i just think i I don't know how accurate an intelligent test would be and um at this point with what's going on anyway and then the third was a personality test and they show that they were socially unaware they just didn't get other you know maybe the bullying stuff but the other stuff it seemed like they they didn't get or they didn't care about what was going on around them they were unable to notice or follow social cues. They were depressed, withdrawn, 
isolated. Um, they didn't seek out any outside support or empathy or help. They were there for each other. And, but they were also strongly adverse to conflict, confrontation, anger, and competition. So the staff were very frustrated and stressed out by the twins. It appeared as if they were running the show, not the staff at the school. And they responded to nothing. They had this strange behavior that wouldn't improve. And the staff felt that they were menacing, especially when they would catch the twins smirking. So they would do this and smirk. So to me, that's like, okay. You, when you smirk, you know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like a smirk is just naturally on someone's face. No, that's a, a thought process behind it. Um, well, there's a difference between being like sort of playful smile. Or like a smirk like you idiots, right? And so the staff felt the twins were playing with them. Kathy and Tim felt like the next logical move was to separate them. They wanted one to stay in Eastgate and another to go to a similar school called Carmarthen. But they were met with a ton of resistance. Both Eastgate and uh, Carmarthen thought it would be cruel to separate the two of them. So they were going to continue to try and convince the school to take one sister each. Meanwhile, Kathy continued to work with the girls and she finally saw a little improvement and just said, uh, you know, I believe that there, she believed that there was a method behind their madness. June and Jennifer knew about the possibility of them being separated. So they stepped up their game. They started acting better, uh-huh. less bizarre behavior more attention, more improvement. Normal. Yeah. But what they started to do was make phone calls to the teachers and therapists trying to strike a deal. So mute to like, listen, if we're good, you don't split us up. So they knew what they were doing. So they said, if we, if we do better, you don't, you don't separate us. Um, they were manipulative. And of course, they couldn't keep up this end of the deal. They just continued to carry on with their with their regular behavior. In March 1978, it was finally agreed upon that there would be a trial separation of the twins. Nothing else was working, and the staff was unnerved. Jennifer was to stay at Eastgate, and June went to Dr. Davies' unit at Carmarthen. Tim Thomas broke the news to them, and he was really worried about their reaction. But nothing could prepare him for what happened. Jennifer just started clenching her hands and looking like she was going to like so angry, like enraged. So she turned to June and she gouged her face with her fingernails, drawing blood. Jesus. June retaliated by literally pulling out chunks of Jennifer's hair from her scalp. Then they they chased each other down the hallway, screaming at the top of their lungs and then finally, with great effort, they were able to separate them. Okay, so they're angry, and but they attack each other. So that's got to show you where there's something going on where the other one is blaming the other. If you just followed me, if we just did this together, this wouldn't happen. So you screwed up that caused this to happen. Okay? I mean, why such rage to kick the shit out of each other? I mean, I thought if they were going to do anything, they kicked the shit out of him. Yeah, yeah, that's what I thought you were going to say. Like, the frustration would be turned towards the school. No, they attacked each other. So they're like, what the hell, the, the school? 
So March 13th, 1978 was the first day of separation. Jennifer, like I said, Eastgate, June to Carmarthen. And Jennifer fared much better than June. Part of the reason I think is because June could go, uh, Jennifer could go home every night after school. They weren't, they weren't living at Eastgate. Obviously, I told you about the drive. But June had to stay and live at Carmarthen. And June went into a catatonic state. She refused to eat. She wouldn't leave her room unless she was forced to do so. And they said that she would just sit with a blank look on her face and tears would just constantly run out of her eyes without moving. And it was really disturbing. So they tried everything that they could, everything that, every resource they had, but nothing to no avail. So on May 8th, 1978, they ended the separation because June would have just been hospitalized and she hadn't learned anything in, in these five weeks. Um, her physical and mental health were too much at risk. So they said, okay. So, you know, the twins kind of won there. Kathy Arthur continued to try and have a positive impact on the twins, but there was none to be had. So after 24 weeks, it was decided that the twins would finish out their school year, but not be welcomed back. So here's a quote from Kathy. Quote, treatment had no effect whatsoever on their academic attainment. Um, it might be suggested that the program was limited in its effect. End of quote. Kathy had very little contact with the twins after this. And then she ended up leaving to go start a family. She passed a case on to a woman, uh, a therapist by the name of Ann Brown, who took over. And their behavior continued to deteriorate. They had won the battle against the school. And the school had no hold on them. There was nothing they could do. And they knew it. Jennifer wanted to erase any differences between her and June. June. Jennifer always felt that she was inferior to June. She felt that she was the, well, she was the oldest, but she felt she was more loved and more favored. June wanted to be different and be her own person. Jennifer did not, because if she had her and they were the same person, she could hold on to, to June. She wouldn't move on. So this is what she did. And this is what the staff overheard. Jennifer would eerily chant night and day to June, you are Jennifer, you are me, you are Jennifer, you are me, over and over and over again. So this is where I'm going to end this episode. That's a lot, eh? I know. It's very very complex. So So it goes from adorable twins doing their own thing, to not speaking, to bizarre behavior. And then as they get older, I think that they're revealing that they know what they're doing. Hmm, there's a psychopathy there. And don't, for, you know, okay, uh, frustration, people not understanding you, get it. Bullying, get it. Like, I understand where a lot of this would come from. But then there's a level of, of deviant behavior here. And it looks like Jennifer is evil twin that's not that's not right to say that she was like devious and manipulative and controlling exactly so Mm -hmm. that's the end of today's episode all right well can't let 
I kept on writing and going, all right, I want to put this in and I want to put that in. And we'll look uh, forward to the next episode. Yeah. Uh, I know I, I've heard you guys like the detail that I go into. So here you go. <laughs> you can see, you can see why I, uh, uh, I, I, I stop and then I just, I'm like, what do I take out? What do I leave in? Anyway. No, I just, I know you've been doing a ton of research and, um, there's more out there than I thought. And then when I found this, uh, this documentary where June is actually talking, I was like, what? And throughout the documentary, there are, um, some of the doctors talking, Kathy Arthur and stuff like that. So I'm going to insert some of that, um, into oh, cool. the upcoming episode so you can hear, um, what, uh, was going on. So yeah, anyway, that's the end of today's episode. And, uh, yeah, the next is it, it gets more and more interesting. Let's just put it that way. And their personalities and what's going on on the inside and the things they do get more and more bizarre. So let's just let's we'll leave it at that. All right. Okay. Sounds good. So thank you everybody for joining in and listening today. I uh, we appreciate all the support that you give through listenership and through uh, supporting us on Patreon. Also. Thanks for being on the Facebook page and contributing. Great group. And, you know, uh, like we always say, please take care of yourself and take care of each other. But most importantly, love yourself. Peace. One love. True crime and it gets none realer. Sometimes it'll be the cure that'll kill you. Gotta watch out, yeah, you gotta watch your back. Cause you don't wanna be another episode on stat. Thank you for tuning in, learn a thing or two. These medical mysteries can be unbelievable, yeah. Subscribe, make sure you do that so you'll be tuned in and be ready for the next show. Stack. <laughs>